Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Jack's podcast. <laughs> and uh, this is The Crosscut, a podcast that contextualizes the news of the day with the story, themes, and motifs of a treasured- Or trash. Piece of cinema. I made you start the podcast over because I forgot to do that. <laughs> I thought I was going to do it during the or trash part. And then I was like, no, it's my name part. <laughs> I uh, I appreciate it. I was like, oh, he's got something coming. It'd yeah. be a, if you made me restart the whole- 30 second. Yeah. Intro. Well, you know, I was like, we're, you know, it, 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 I'm not asking you to redo the whole thing. It was just right at the beginning. So it's fine. Good. Yeah. Uh, that's fine. Uh, so, so worth it. Yeah. And, and clearly, uh, we are covering fight club this week. The, yeah. the 1999 David Fincher classic great year for movies. As we talked about, uh, on the pre-show, mm-hmm. um, really, really fantastic year. And, uh, this is, this is, I was not one of the top grossing films of the year. It was, uh, uh, performed pretty poorly actually in theaters. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, since has become a cult classic. Do you remember first hearing about this film? I saw a trailer for it in theaters. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay. I recall, um, I think that my friend Akil was just like, yeah, I just saw Fight Club. You got to see it. Oh, uh, sure. And I was like, I don't know. That sounds dumb. Yeah. <laughs> It's called they, Fight Club. <laughs> yeah. So I, I dug into some some uh, information about why it failed, at least from a marketing perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, like, the, I think they just, they, they kind of missed the, mar- they didn't lean into, like, any of the things that they had going for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so they did not uh, want to really, like, showed like the fighting in the trailer right uh or in like the the any of the advertising or marketing like the like it was so they were like oh, this is going to work with teen boys but they like didn't really standing near each other shirtless club yeah right and, and then and they were like well we do have brad pitt i guess like maybe girls would go see the movie if we showed like brad pitt on the tr- on the poster and they were like no we're not putting brad pitt on the poster you know what we're putting on the poster soap, soap. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's like, ah, uh, boy, y'all, just a series of poor and You know how the whole point decisions. of this movie was soap? Right. That was a big, you know, uh, a big couple of minutes in the movie, basically. It's a weird, it's a weird choice to go with because I think that if you know nothing about this film and all you see is these like super beat up dudes and like really dingy whatever holding a bar of soap. Mm-hmm. Like you think it's like a weird play on like don't drop the soap. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like sure. maybe it's a prison movie or something, or like that. Like I could almost see it being like a breaking out of prison film or something. Yeah. I don't, it, it it was weird, but I think that this and The Matrix. Yes. The both, Matrix also not. Both came mar- out this year, right? Yep. Yep. And both were films that were, I, I think, hugely revolutionary for the industry, for people our age, for young men. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, made by Gen X filmmakers, sort of yeah. their commentary on society at mm-hmm. the time. Like, there are a lot of overlaps between this movie and The Matrix, at least in terms of their philosophy on life. And then just hugely, both both hugely influential in the, in just culture, right? Yeah. Just, like, huge impact in culture. Um, this was one that I think that the, by the time I finally got around to seeing it, it was at the, like, cheap dollar theater. Sure. Yeah. In in Tallahassee. Yeah. Well, the marketing campaign. So so Fincher uh, was the one who was like, "We're not putting Brad Pitt on the poster." <laughs> like, okay, David Fincher, bad bad idea. David Fincher said, "Don't put 
Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. On the, he's he, the reason that you like. He refused to let uh, Pitt and, like be on the posters or in the trailer largely because he, he it's like to his credit, he made a movie where he's like Brad Pitt's not supposed to be like you're supposed to find out why he's important in the course of the movie. You're not supposed to like be able to glean anything in advance. Right. Right. Um, and so he, he came up with the marketing. He was the one who like had the idea to hire a firm to do the, the pink bar of soap, uh, marketing plan. Mm-hmm. And the, the, um, the executives at Fox considered that to be just like a bad joke. Like it was, <laughs> and, and so they were like, uh, we don't really want to do that, but they did it anyway. And he was also the one who released two early trailers for the film. I don't know if you remember these, but they were like fake public service announcements. No. Yeah. So if you have, this. yeah, if you have the DVD um, of Fight Club from like 2000, um, you'll have the fake public so PSAs on there, and they are like Edward Norton talking to camera, like you know, don't eat the food at a hotel because the employees might pee in it or whatever. Oh, it's it's something like that. Um, and so I'm sure they're on YouTube. Um, the the studio did not like those either, mm-hmm. so they sort of fi- they financed their own twenty million dollar large scale uh, marketing campaign, but their marketing campaign was focused on things that highlighted the fight scenes, and they advertised on like the WWF broadcasts oh. at the time. And if you know anything about wrestling audiences. They don't do anything but go to wrestling matches and watch wrestling shows. They are very insular. And so, like, the idea that, insular. like... Insular. Hey. We'll get into that later, I your guess. Your words. Your words. <laughs> um, so, anyway, it, it was just, like, the the stuff that Fincher, like, f- failed to do because he was so caught up in the story. Like, the executives, like tried to do but failed because they didn't know anything about the story. So anyway, it was it was just a failure of marketing all around. I think that it is not surprising that the marketers had no idea what to do with this film because yeah. it does not fit in neatly into a box. Right? Yeah. It's not a rom-com. It's not an action film. It's not a war movie. It's not any of those things. And Hollywood classically does not know what to do with a good film that doesn't fit squarely into a specific into a specific role and not only that but i think that people watching this movie don't didn't get it a lot of people did not get this movie they did not get the point of the movie they really literally thought it was just about guys making soap and fighting each other and that was the that was the key takeaway for probably 80% of the people who, we'll saw, talk about it. Yeah. who saw this film yeah. at the time, including the marketers. So they were like, yeah, I don't know. We'll make it a real fighting. Yeah. The studios did not like this movie. <laughs> like like the heads at Fox. Bill Mechanic, the head of Fox at the time, did like the movie. But mm-hmm. a lot of the other people who make the day-to-day decisions did not. And so, yeah, it was like, they were just like, I don't know, man. Uh, Brad Pitt is shirtless and fighting. Put it on WWF. <laughs> Like that's, that's literally the I mean, extent of their brains. That sounds, yeah. that sounds correct. And I, yeah. and I would say that I didn't fully get right. the point of this movie until probably maybe this time, maybe I don't even fully get it now. I mean, I, I think I have a, a better idea of it now yeah. as a grown 40 year old person yeah. who has lived an entire life of seeing sure, yes. like men growing up also like yep. now I'm a much better position than when I was 16 to understand this. 
but I've also had almost 25 years mm-hmm. to mull it over. Yeah. Uh, well, I will say this. You said that studio didn't know how to market it because it wasn't just like your standard romantic comedy. Mm. The writer of the film describes it as a romantic comedy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, we, I mean, we should probably that's fair, yeah. you know, um, no, I could see that. I could see that. I mean, he, they get they get together at the end. Okay, really quickly. Hold yeah. on. Pause. Um, spoiler alert for Fight Club. Yes, thank you. Uh, so for this twenty, almost twenty four year old film, uh, we will be spoiling it. We'll be telling you all of the things about the movie. Yeah. If you and and by the way, this is a movie. If you haven't seen it, it can be spoiled. It can be. It's you a- can. Big spoilers. It's a big one. And you will not see the movie. Once you know the spoil, this is part, uh, you'll not watch the movie the same way. And And so, and and you should see it both ways. You should see it without knowing what happens. And you should see it when you do know what happens because it changes your perspective, makes a huge difference in the movie. Yeah. So if you haven't watched this movie, if it's been literally 24 years and you've put it off, stop. Go watch this movie. Don't listen to any more and then come back, okay? And, yeah. and so uh, I'm going to give you, we're going to pause right here. All right, and now we're back. Everybody has caught up. You watched Fight Club. Congratulations. I'm glad the first thing you decided to do after watching that is come back and press play on this podcast. You couldn't wait to come back here. Yeah. So uh, we are going to play our nice little uh Really quick, one music. other disclaimer. We are also going to be getting into some talk about mental health issues in this episode. Sure. And we're going to be talking about things like um, suicide. We're going to be talking about things that are affecting men today. Right. But this is just a content warning again, just for anybody out there. Yeah. Um, just is it's a little bit of a heavier uh, news um, yeah. episode as well. Anxiety, stress, depression, suicide, self-harm, all of those things. Tanning balls. Okay. Well, uh, d- didn't know we were going there, but sure. Uh, we're not. And, and uh, yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna have some conversations about that. We will try and be respectful throughout the, the podcast. But uh, just so you know, if it's a thing you uh, you need to opt out on, understood. Uh, yeah, understandable. All right. Uh, and now with that, let's get into it. Let's do it. Recent articles in the New York Times titled The Crisis Among Men, The Washington Post titled Men Are Lost, and USA Today asking, are men okay? Each address the same thesis, that a crisis of masculinity has been silently brewing. And while gender roles for women have been the subject of many books, classes, and movies over the past three, four decades, men are now expected by many to update their roles accordingly, but with less guidance on what the new expectations are, let alone how to meet them. Hello! Where am I? (laughs) What's happening? Where am I? I can't see anything! I'm lost! (laughs) Just keep talking, I'll follow your voice! I don't know what's going on. I was lost. I was, I was lost in the uh, men are men are lost, and so I was. <laughs> I don't know if that. Really I don't know if that voice work helped. I tried to redirect my voice so it get a little echo. But I don't know. That I've that's also gonna, soundproofed the room. So that's <laughs> not going to transfer into. The no. We'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah. So, I mean, uh, look, we, I, I think that this is one of those things that we mentioned in our pre-show. This is not a singular story. There right. have been a lot of stories over the past four or five years. And I think that this is something that I was actually calling out, um, as early as when I was in college, where I would just look around and be like, wow, there are way just disproportionately more women in my classes yeah. and they are doing, taking this much seriouser much more serious than the men. Seriouser? Yes, that's correct. <laughs> uh, so yeah, my my experience in college um, and probably lots of high school as well is I, I had uh, better and more close relationships with my female friends mm-hmm. and had a harder time like finding male friends. Um, and I think part of that is like, I think women just are more inclined to open up to another person and be like, Hey, what are you interested in? What do you like? What's, what are the things that matter to you? Mm -hmm. And dudes just like seem so guarded that it's like having a conversation is like pulling teeth. And I'm like, Hey, you could talk about uh, football or basketball or hockey or whatever, but like, that's kind of it. Like, I can't be like, Hey, I watched this movie. Here's what it made me think about and feel It's like that just didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, I guess we're going to jump all the way into the middle of my research. <laughs> no, no, then. no, we, we, can, we can get there <laughs> no, in a little bit. <laughs> but I mean, you're, I mean, well, so you're absolutely right. And, act, and actually, one of the things that I did in preparation for this podcast is I finally bought and started listening to a book that I had been meaning to, which mm-hmm. is um, by Liz Plank. Sure, yep. Um, and it's uh, called For the Love of Men. And it's basically a a thesis from a feminist perspective on this idea of toxic masculinity or this idea of like this crisis of masculinity that we're seeing Mm -hmm. and how, when we say that masculinity is toxic or when we say that these ideals that, that have been ingrained into young boys and then men for decades, for generations, um, that it's toxic. We don't mean, oh, it's just toxic for women. We mean it's toxic for literally everybody and specifically for men. And one of those things that you see is that you have men who have just, they have the inability to find intimacy or closeness with other people and especially with men. Yeah. Well, and and so I, I there's a natural um, analog, which there's a, a book that I listened to on an audiobook called Dying of Whiteness. Yeah. And there are several elements, like statistically speaking, that white people in predominantly white states fight against, right? So gun control or adding money to health care, like those kinds of things, white people vote against again and again largely because they worry that people of other races are going to take advantage of them, right? Um, and they need their guns to protect themselves from the scourge of the evil people out there. And they need their, they don't want uh, freeloaders to take their health care or whatever. But in so doing, in voting against those things, they are also voting against their own best interests. Like in these places, white men are more likely to commit suicide by gun. Mm-hmm. In these places, white men are more likely to die from lack of health care. And I feel like the same thing happens in what you're talking about with toxic masculinity, where it's like the way that men behave writ large cause them to have health problems, cause them to have, uh, like you, like we sort of talked about or alluded to, like depression, anxiety, all of that stuff. Right. I mean, so a couple of just um, 
broad statistics, you know, in the United States, male men make up about 80% of deaths by suicide. Wow. Yeah. I wow. mean, it's, it, it's, it's wild. Like, I, I wonder again, how much of that like overlaps with the gun stuff. Like, I wonder how, oh, like, hugely. Per, yeah, like what the percentage of attempts are versus the percentage of completion for lack of a better word. Yeah. I mean, so, so, uh, if we're talking about an, that we're going to go a little bit further in, but I mean, we yeah. can, again, we can sort of just jump right into it, but like in, so the, that statistic of 80% of deaths by suicide, um, was, came from, uh, 2021. Okay. Um, and in that year, uh, more than 47,000 people in the U S died by suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, and 38,000, uh, were men. That's and that's wild. according to the national center for health statistics. Um, and that, yeah, that's up. Um, so last yeah. year in 2022, we don't have obviously full stats for this year, but last year in 2022, 2022, it went up from 47,000 to 49,500. Yeah. So near like um, almost 50,000 people, um, took their lives last year. Um, and it was the largest increase seen in, uh, the largest increase was seen in older adults, which rose nearly 7%. Um, for people between the ages of 45 and 64 and more than 8% for people 65 and older, white men in particular had very, very high rates. And, um, it's the highest that we've seen since two, uh, World War II. Wow. Since they started basically keeping track of that's, this metric. That's wild. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the, if you, if you look at the, the, the chart, which I just, like have here. Yeah. I mean, it's just yeah. this just skyrocketed. Yeah. Yeah. It's a steady increase and it, it increased basically year over year um, since 2000 with the exception of falling slightly in 2020 during COVID where mm-hmm. they felt like a lot of people like banded together. And so they sort of had something to like fight for, to come together for. Um, but the, <laughs> I the, wonder, well, I also wonder if it's actually more, easily explained by saying since the increase in rates occurred with older populations, Mm -hmm. if it is in fact that those people just died from COVID instead of being able to commit suicide. Um, Like I just wonder if there's a a different cause of mortality. I mean, there's certainly, that was a, that was a, just a wild year in terms of like kind of everything. So it's a little bit hard, but like it, that's the, the theory that was pop that was postulated was that it was because people had a sense of like coming together. Yeah. Um, despite the actual like physical isolation that you had. It's a good, it's a good, uh, question to pose. I, I don't have a, I don't have an answer. Like, yeah. and I feel like that's a, that what you're proposing is a hypothesis that someone should test rather than like the actual answer, you know? Yeah. But to your question about guns or to your point about guns, um, you know, the recent increases are obviously driven by a, a lot of different factors. And, and a lot of that has to do with higher rates of depression, limited availability of mental health services. Yeah. Um, and specifically, obviously men are less likely to even seek acknowledge that they have mental health issues and then seek help for those mental health issues. But the main driver really is just the growing availability of guns. According to um, Jill Hockey Friedman, who is a senior vice president of research at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, um, suicide attempts involving guns end in death far more often than those with uh, by other means. And gun sales have have boomed. And yeah. there are just more firearms in more homes. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely, it's, it's a confluence of factors. Um, but 
I mean, according to the Mental Health Foundation, like I said, like men are far less likely than women to seek professional support. Um, and they're also just less likely to to disclose that they even have a mental health problem. Um, a YouGov survey of more than 2,500 people said that um, there was 28% of men admitted to having not sought medical help um, compared to 19% of women. Wow. So, you know, it's a confluence of a lot of different things, but also just the vast majority of people who own guns are men. Yeah. Guns are also marketed toward men. Right. You know? Yeah. It's, it's such a seditious thing. Like they market guns towards men. It's being like, you have to protect your house. You have to be the one to, to guard against the unwashed hordes that are coming to take over your house. And really all they're doing are putting the weapons of your own destruction inside your house. Right. Like we, we know, like there are statistics that prove if you have a gun in your house, you are more likely to use it against yourself or more likely to have an accidental shooting than you are to protect yourself from an invader. Right. Like it's just, it's just, I don't like, I don't, I'm not, this is not pontification. It's just a fact. It's just how the numbers play out. And so, so like it's, it's unfortunate. And by unfortunate, I mean like borderline criminal (laughs) that gun uh, manufacturers and lobbyists just market this idea of protection when all it's doing is creating another dead body of the, on the person that they sell the the gun to. But they're not even just marketing this idea of, of protection, right? They are literally marketing the idea of masculinity. Yeah. yeah, So um, the Sandy hook, um, after the after the Sandy Hook shooting or Sandy Hook um, victims are filing have filed a lawsuit against Remington, which um, I guess had an ad for guns that literally like um, was talking about like your man card is revoked. Oh yeah, I've heard of that one. Yeah, and guys could go to this website and then like type in their buddy's email address to send them an email saying like your man card has been revoked. You need to buy a gun. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Again, I think this is, I may have said this before on this very podcast, Mm. but I am not the kind of person who wants to belong to any club that would have me. And so somebody doing that nonsense to me be like, good. I don't want to talk to you ever again. How how did you get my email address? Why did you give my email address to these people? Now, now I'm stuck with gun emails for the rest of my I life. Oh, Jesus. That's, that's literally all it is. It's like a marketing campaign to gather people's email addresses against their will. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, oh email marketers, just the worst humans. Uh, them and like email marketers for gun manufacturers have just have to be the, the most soulless like depraved individuals. All right. Well, so getting back into (laughs) um, other ways that men are seeing a crisis right now or that masculinity or that uh, the the male sex is, is experiencing people issues. Yeah. Um, So it's not just in uh, deaths by suicide, um, but also just deaths of despair generally. Yeah. You know, men die of overdoses at two to three times greater rate than women. And then in ed- things like education, you see that uh, girls outperform boys by more than 40% of a grade level uh, in, in every state 
in, as low as like fourth grade. Yeah. And it, it matriculates up to college where I think now, or like in the last couple of years or something, the majority of people enrolled in college in the United States are women for the first time in whatever, however long. Yeah. I think it's like 56% of people yeah. enrolled in college are women, but also not only that, but women are much more likely to receive their degree than men. So it's not even just like who's enrolled in college, but who's more Who likely to receive. Around. Right. So now, um, men receive uh, 74 bachelor's degrees for every 100 awarded to women. Wow. And and women still get paid like 74 cents for every dollar a man makes. That's just complete nonsense. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of wild, right? You just, you see that there, it, it's not just women, right? But it's also like women of color. I think black women. The, black women are like 63 cents. Hispanic women are like 54 cents. Well, no, I was going to say the rate at which black women get degrees is oh, even it's, oh, higher. So high. It's so like, high. it's like through the roof. Yeah. Right. Um, and and it's it has not matriculated up right. yet, right. you know, to the top tiers. The top tiers are still dominated by old white men. Mm -hmm. We are just waiting to just let go of those reins and see you, Rupert Murdoch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it's it's one of those things that you know we are seeing these huge strides, sort of with younger generations, but you still just have the like. 65 year old white dude head of a company who types with his you know two fingers right and doesn't know how to work the copy machine yeah yeah there uh i i was listening to a different podcast <laughs> and they, they had an anecdote about uh in his time in the senate mm. which was until fairly recently uh until like the 20 what i don't know when he died 2017 2018 john mccain never sent one single email. That's how you know he didn't have any servers. <laughs> Hillary. <laughs> so you're saying that women are the problem. All right. Episode over, everybody. Thanks. We're all done. We solved it, folks. <laughs> uh, no, I, it's just, it's wild to me. Like, I, look, I'm not asking you to put on like an Oculus headset, man. I'm not trying to, <laughs> I don't need a VR John McCain, but I I would love for you to be able to type words onto a screen and push send. Look, Mitch is still having an issue just rebooting his system. He, man, I'm not going <laughs> to uh, bless his heart. No, no, I'm not blessing anything about that, man. Uh, I mean, uh, in, in the Southern way, in the Southern way, which means like kick rocks. Go after yourself. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Okay. Um, so, I mean, we, we jumped right in to a lot of deep stuff. And one of the things I'd like to do is just sort of like wrap in a couple of moments about the film, if we can, to the things that we've talked about so far. Because there are a couple of elements that like really do stand out to me. Yeah. That you mentioned. So, uh, first of all, uh, talking about Fight Club came out October 15th, 1999, directed by David Fincher. Do you know any, like, what are the other David Fincher films, you know? The Madonna video. Okay, that doesn't count. <laughs> Frozen. I'm not going to say that she was a uh, a female lead of one of his films. So, uh, give me give me a feature length film, please. Um, is it terrible that I genuinely like I I can't? You've probably seen quite a few of oh, them. Oh, I'm sure I have. So, uh, his first film was Alien Three, which you may not have seen. Mm, it's actually a better movie. He has disowned the movie. Okay. Um, it's better than you would think based off of like his response to it. Mm -hmm. But he was with Fox for that movie and they, the people cut it apart, like just tore it apart, took it away from him, uh, made some cut that he didn't appreciate. And, and that was the whole thing. After that, mm -hmm. he made the movie uh, Seven. 
Okay, yeah. I was going to say, it's definitely stuff with Brad Pitt, right? That was like, when yeah. he first worked with Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the value there, was, it was Brad Pitt trying to say, like, I don't want to be a heartthrob anymore. Mm-hmm. I just want to, I want to be like a serious actor. I want to do the work. Uh, Brad Pitt did Seven and Twelve Monkeys in the same year. Um, Twelve Monkeys is so underrated. It's it's a great film. Mm-hmm. Um, but, Not a David Venture film, though. No, Terry Gilliam. Yeah. Uh, but he, so... Brad Pitt was was enough of a name at that point in Seven whenever David Venture was like, oh, I think we should do this. Like, here's the thing I think we should do. Um, and the studio was like, no, we're not doing that, you sicko. Uh, Brad Pitt was like, yeah, we're going to do that. And they're like, okay, sure, Brad. Sounds good. <laughs> um, so it's like, we shouldn't have Gwyneth Paltrow's head in the box. It Other should, spoilers. She, yeah, it's like, <laughs> she should still be alive at the end of the movie. And they were like, no. Brad Pitt's like, no. And so they're like, all right, fine. So it became, it, it was like, that movie made $100 million. And how? I have no idea. It's so dark. It is like. So dark. But again, I think we've just proven over and over again that studio executives don't know anything. It's, I mean, no one knows anything. Yeah. Because the one quotable line from that entire film. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Anytime somebody gets something from Amazon, somebody <laughs> in, in their household goes, what's in the box? <laughs> right? Like yes. it's just, it's constantly quoted. Yeah. Yeah. I, I 100% agreed. But after that, he did The Game with Michael Douglas. Okay. After yes. that, he did Fight Club. After right. Fight Club, he does Panic Room. Oh, um, with, uh, with Jodie Foster. Oh, and I was going to say Kristen Chris, Stewart. Kristen Stewart. Kristen Stewart, yeah. And also... Yeah. Uh, Angel Face, the Jared Leto. Jared Leto, yep. He does... Boris uh, Whitaker. Yep. Uh, the Curious Case of Benjamin Button. He does... Never saw that. Uh, I saw it in theaters. It's, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw... Or, or he did um, Gone Girl. Mm-hmm. He did Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. Those those have female leads. But, like, I think a lot of Fincher yeah. is, like, very, like, kind of dude. Dude. Dude movies. Dude movies. It's like dude movies. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that's kind of interesting in this the context of this uh, film. And if you listen to the director's commentary, which I did, um, I mean, I've listened to it several times when I've I was listened to the director's 17 commentary. years old. But <laughs> I it's think like, that we've concluded that we probably both have a copy of, yes. of this from the 90s or Al- the early aughts. Almost certainly. And uh, it's like, it's him and Brad Pitt and... Edward Norton. Who's in, just so obnoxious. In a room, right? And they're they're talking, they're together talking. Yeah. And then Helena Bonham Carter is like separate. She's in London. So she's just not, yeah. she didn't fly in to record her stuff. Mm-hmm. And she is like so nice and courteous and complimentary of the actors. And to be fair, they are all complimentary of her as well. But like the dudes in the room are just like. Uh, it's very boys. Club. Very bro Yeah. And like, it's like. Edward Norton just spouting off on like Buddhism and Nietzsche and all this shit. It's like, it's just like, oh, you went to college. Cool. <laughs> I just remember listening to this and like I was in my philosophy major, I think yeah, probably yeah, yeah. at this point. I just remember listening to this and thinking, okay, the director is clearly doing the director thing. Yeah. Brad Pitt is, I don't know, eating an apple and talking, like making jokes and like talking about how cool this thing was. And Edward Norton sounds insufferable. Yeah. And he is very much, he's very much his character at the beginning of the film where he's just like, look how clever I am. Right. My single serving friends. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yes, that that is very correct. 
couple things I mentioned just before we get into how what you we've talked about so far relates to the film. Yeah. There were a couple other directors considered for the film. Okay. So it's based off a book written by Chuck Palahniuk. Right. Um, he's written a bunch of other things. Choke. Some, huh? Something called yeah, Choke. Yeah, Choke. Um, there was also... There's one other movie that got made out of a book that he did, and I forget what he's it was. something about, like, Cocoa Puffs. Uh, no. I don't know. But he, he's he's an interesting author. Um, he he is gay. He's writes out of Portland. So, um, or like, I don't know, he's just kind of like a, a weirdo. Like, Portland's full of weird people. He's mm-hmm. kind of a weirdo. But that's fine. Like, uh, some of his books are good. Some are, you know, trying to be Fight Club again. Right. Um, and, and so the first director that they went to is Peter Jackson. He was busy filming a film called The Frighteners in New Zealand. Um, they went to Brian Singer. He turned it down. Uh, they went to Danny Boyle of like Slumdog Millionaire fame. Um, did that, he do like 28 Days Later? He did 28 Days Later. Yeah. He did what? He did Sunshine. He did a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, he went on and did something else. Um, they also went to David O. Russell, who is the guy who did like The Fighter and I Heart Huckabees and uh, Silver Linings Playbook. Mm-hmm. None of those guys seem like they would have had the same handle on this content. It's so dark and gritty. Yeah. And it's like when you see what Fincher did with Seven and with the game, Mm -hmm. you look at this and you're like, oh, the worldview of this story is exactly your worldview. Right. This kind of fits like you have no faith in humanity. Right. Because everyone you just just listed is very, I mean, like they, they all have things that I enjoyed. Peter Jackson just did the Lord of the Rings like right yeah. after this came out. Like they're not untalented, but I think that you know it's certainly a, a long way from the Shire. Yes, yeah, yeah, very much so. Uh, and so the the other things that uh, will probably put this script in a little more context mm-hmm. is that, um, as I mentioned, the writer Jim Yules. Described it as a romantic comedy, saying it has to do with the character's attitudes towards a healthy relationship, which is a lot of behavior which seems unhealthy and harsh to each other, but in fact does work for them because both characters are out on the edge psychologically. I don't know that he had a full grasp on the script he was writing. Right. Like there were many rewrites done on this script. Um, Fincher went to Cameron Crowe. Okay. Uh, who wrote like Jerry Maguire and a bunch of other stuff. Oh, the Gladiator? Uh, uh, no, that's Russell Crowe was oh, okay. in Gladiator. <laughs> Uh, funny story. Russell Crowe was actually considered for the role of Tyler Durden. Oh, um, nope. Gladiator also came out in 1999. Um, and so, uh, Fincher also, um, Hmm. brought Brad Pitt and Edward Norton in, uh, to revise the script. Like they worked on the script with him. They had several passes together. And then most importantly, which I think is probably not surprising. The guy who wrote the script for seven, Andrew Kevin Walker, wrote on Fight Club. Okay. So uh, you'll hear sometimes in the director's commentary, like Brad Pitt will be like, oh, was that an AKW line? And be like, yeah, that was. And so he he made things a lot. Uh, specifically, there was a line where Tyler and Marla have sex. And she says, I haven't been fucked like that since grade school. Right. The original line was, uh, I want to get pregnant and have your abortion. Right. And they made them change the line. So, so he was <laughs> oh, like, yeah, all right. Oh, yeah, the alt is so much better. Right, exactly. And so it was just uh, things like that uh, were were right up um, AKW's line. So um, that that's all I wanted to get into in terms of like the, the setup for the movie. Why these people made this movie about masculinity so sort of like like on the nose. 
like literally just tapping it on the nose, right? Just saying like, there are men in this film who feel lost, out of place, and out of touch with their society. What do they do about it? You mean you literally open the film with a bunch of men in a room hugging each other and crying and chanting, we are men. Yeah. Men is what we are. Right? Kind of. Because before that, mm. something happens and he says, let me start from the beginning. We actually open on Tyler Durden with a gun in Jack's mouth. Sure. So getting back to the roles of, of guns in men's lives. Right. Uh, which I'm just setting up for, you know, the ending of the film. Uh, but yes. <laughs> yeah. The begin- I mean, before we move away from that, I think that rewatching this, it just strikes me that every time I watch this, I'm like, man, this first opening scene literally tells you every single thing that's going to end uh, yep. this film. Yep. And you forget it instantly yep. because everything else is so engrossing and just it's so fast. sucks you in. It's so fast. And you're just like, oh, I, I, I forgot. I forgot that uh, we started with like, I guess, vans filled with nitroglycerin at the bottom of these buildings. And yeah. the, there's a ticking Bullet clock hole. and a gun in a mouth. Yeah. <laughs> forgot about that part. <laughs> yep. And I, I feel like the movie and a lot of good movies do this, but it's like someone ties a sandbag to your feet and throws you in a pool. Mm. And you freak out. You're like, what? I don't know how to get my bearings. Like, what's going on right here? And then eventually, as the movie starts to settle in, you're like, okay, here's what I have to do. Take first step, untie the thing. Second step, swim to the surface. Third step, take a breath, whatever. Like, you kind of ease into that in the middle part of the movie. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the third act is just, like, insanity again. But, like, the the opening is so chaotic. Right. And so full of, like, adding new characters, new situations, new, like understanding of what the character needs to like accomplish in order to like get to the next goal. Right. Like, which is like for most of the beginning part of the movie, it's sleep, <laughs> like just to fall asleep. Um, that it's like really disorienting early on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, wait, okay. So backing up though, cause you were talking about masculinity. Yes. Yeah, so we, we are introduced to Bob. Play, yes. Played by meatloaf at the testicular cancer support group. Um, and we are introduced by, by voiceover from the narrator played by Edward Norton. That's right. Uh, that these men in some circumstances have had their, their, uh, balls removed. Right. Um, because of testicular cancer. Yeah. And they, what is the, the thing that is interesting about this is there are subtle sort of attacks at masculinity in the script. Right. Bob is not overweight. What does Bob have? Bob has bitch tits. His bitch tits. Right. So, I mean, I think that, it, so there's something that's very interesting about this because, right, they they are at this group filled with men and they're literally reaffirming their masculinity over and over and over again. And yep. one of the things that Liz Plank mentions in her book, and I think is, is true, is that when you talk about masculinity versus femininity, there is this idea that masculinity is fragile, right? It can be kind of revoked or mm. man card, right? Yeah. It can be kind of taken away by other men in their esteem at any time, right? It's it unlike femininity, it is something that kind of needs to be reaffirmed yeah. over and over again because it there any little thing can make it feel 
less masculine, right? Oh my God, you're wearing a, you're wearing a pink shirt. Oh no, I'm sorry. It's salmon. Let me just make sure to reaffirm that I'm not wearing, I'm not wearing pink. Right. Right. Like there's, there's just this idea that, that masculinity is much more fragile. Yeah. That as a, as a concept, as like an assignment for, or, you know, something that people have than, than like their corollary for, for women. Yeah. I feel that there's this weird thing that happened in from 2008 to 2015 or so in like the conservative side of the world, which was they, like women in conservative circles did in fact try to revoke the femininity of one person. Who? Michelle Obama. Oh, that's and, more racism. Than... But that's that's the thing, right? And right. that's that's what was what I was trying to think of is like, why was that actually like the thing that that was being used? And I realize now in this exact moment that what they were doing was trying to hide their racism mm-hmm. behind what they saw men doing in their own lives. They saw the conservative men in their lives that tried to revoke masculinity from the people that they didn't like, you know, soy boys, people who didn't eat meat or people who wouldn't own guns, who didn't get a man card. They tried to use that same tactic on Michelle Obama to say like, well, she's not a woman, she's a man because she has definition in her arms or whatever. Or whatever it was. Which is weird, because you'd think they love some guns. You <laughs> Gun show. Uh, but, <laughs> but the thing, like, I just don't understand, like, like, and that's why I guess it was just, like, such a fringe, nonsensical, like, bullshit thing. It was such a weird, like, very hyper online thing. It's a very, like, uh, your crazy auntie Facebook thing. I never yeah. saw it out in the wild yeah. of Facebook posts. I really only ever heard about it, like by people talking about it and pointing out how like racist and, and insane yeah. it is. Yeah. But but getting back to masculinity though, like it like that's a that's a very much an example. And and I think that like there's a whole other podcast that we could do about <laughs> um a, about like feminism, but then white feminism versus feminism for everybody else and this idea of femininity and yeah. and also how standards for women are white beauty standards. And yes. and we have entirely separate standards for 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 black women or women of color. Yeah. Um whole other thing. But getting back to this idea of of masculinity, you know, that's the exception that sort of proves the rule, right? For for femininity, I would of say course. versus and that masculinity. was exactly what I was pointing out. It's yeah. like this is the only time I've ever seen it applied. And it was clearly based on race, not on Femininity, but, yeah, but, but to your point, masculinity. But yeah. with masculinity, it, it is something that that men feel the constant need to broadcast and to reaffirm and mm-hmm. to make sure that people know. And then what you end up seeing is that it is so um, it is so fragile. It is something that is so impactful that it it literally not only impacts like the way that a man feels about himself, but then also changes the behavior of men when they feel that it has been threatened or taken away. And this has been seen in study after study. So for instance, men with baby faces are more likely to display hostile behavior and commit crimes because they, it's kind of the same thing. Ideas like Uh, like the compensating for overcompensating, like the the Napoleon complex kind of thing. Got it. And then also when men were told that they scored lower on a masculinity test, they're just told this by the way. But when they're told that they scored scored lower than what they were expecting, uh, they were more likely to behave aggressively, to harass women, to belittle other men. Hmm. Interesting. Um, and then men who are unemployed are more likely to um, be violent in the home. 
Oh, yeah, that Which makes is, sense. Yeah, yeah, makes that's... a lot of sense. And then men who are told that they score lower on the masculinity scale also are more likely to blame women for sexual assaults. To blame women. Oh, for them sexually assaulting the women. For having been sexually assaulted. Got it. Okay. Huh. Yeah. I mean, none of that seems uh, outside of the ordinary. Like yeah. a guy was like takes a masculinity test with some scientists yeah. and then they tell them about like some girl who was sexually assaulted and they're like, well, it was her fault. Yeah. <sighs> so it's, it's one of those things where when we're talking about masculinity, it, it's very fragile. Right. And it has, it, it, is core to, I think, men, a lot of men, but then yeah. also is something that is easily threatened. Yeah. So I want to, I want to do two things real quick. Yeah. Number one, I just want to shout out Meatloaf, RIP. <laughs> uh, great in this movie. Um, he, he wore a 90 pound oh my God. Uh, fat suit for this movie. It, and it was funny because when he was cast, he, I think, Brad Pitt was involved in the phone conversation or something. And, mm. and uh, Brad Pitt called up Meatloaf and was like, hey, man, you're on the you're on the team. Congratulations. He's like, great. I lost all this weight. <laughs> and Brad was like, oh, no, buddy. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so, you know. Did he have to gain the weight back or they no, just put him in the suit? Fat suit okay. Yeah. Um, but he also had to wear five, I'm sorry, eight inch lifts um, on his shoes oh, because yeah. he's, he's shorter he's than not- Edward Norton. Whoa! Yeah. And so he had to, to wear lifts to to look bigger. Um, How tall is Edward Norton? Six feet, something like that. Really? Yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. I'll look it up. I would have said like five ten. So then six feet. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of masculinity, uh, no. I look. I I am. I, um, I, I just wanted to shout out Meatloaf because I do think he does deserve credit um, in this film for being. Quite, quite good. Um, he's, he's so good. He's so good and lovable. And we won't get into how he was later in his life. Yeah. I don't need to. But like he, at least in this film, it was just such a tremendous yeah. like presence. Yeah. Presence. And like, I mean, just I remember watching him be like, that's the dude who, that's the dude who's saying. I don't know. No, that's not. Sorry. It's a, uh, uh, what is it? It's a. Uh, I would do anything oh, for yeah. love. Oh, that was big in my in but my. But I won't do that. Household yeah. in the early nineties. I do. I, I do recall there was a, that there was a Nickelodeon show called The Roundhouse, which was a sketch comedy show. Vaguely recall, and they did a version of that song by someone named Vegetarian Loaf, <laughs> oh, no. and it was, and I would do anything for love, but I won't eat meat. I don't Sounds... know why. I don't know why that was supposed to be funny. I still haven't like located the joke in that bit, but so we have once again, gotten off track. Here's my question for you. There there was one other thing I wanted to mention. So you said masculinity is threatened Mm. uh, and fragile in this movie. They play into that quite frequently, not only with the testicular cancer support group, but several times male characters are threatened to have their balls cut off. Yeah. Once in a the senator like in the a bathroom. senator in a bathroom, yeah. Edward Norton when he goes to the police, yep. uh, and like and like they are making very clear, like textually, that manliness is on the table here. Mm-hmm. Literally, sometimes, right, throwing Edward Norton on the table to cut his manliness off, right. Like so, yeah, I just like they're they they are not mincing words in this film just about balls. just balls uh, about like yeah, man, if we. 
if you are, if you stand against us, we take your balls. Right. Yeah. Right. So sorry, you had a question. My, yes. So here's my question for you. How do you define masculinity? Me personally? Um, or do you like... Okay, how about this? Um, traditionally versus your definition. Okay, so I think traditionally, like the what what the expectations are of masculinity mm-hmm. are things like strength, honor, you know, um, sticking to your word, okay. like being there for the your 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 clan, so your like group. integrity, yeah, and mm-hmm. like, but also like aggression um, and like. Uh, like the outward focus of like, I'm doing things, I'm building things, I'm making things, I'm whatever, like all that stuff. Like, yeah. I think that's a lot of like masculinity is always externally focused yeah. around like, what is it that I can create, do, build, be in the world, as opposed to like, what can I do, build, be in myself? Right. Um, so I, you really quickly, before yeah. we get into what you think, I just want to say, as defined by experts, you hit on a lot of the things that that they would say so oh, do you know this, why why because i'm very fucking smart <laughs> okay i'm just so kidding. that that actually hits on two of them okay good <laughs> tell me <laughs> i'm gonna go ahead and say aggression oh come on <laughs> I was, the, the f word was for fun and was, achievement oh sure achievement yeah um autonomy and stoicism are the four sort of pillars of masculinity. Yeah, the stoicism was one I meant to, to touch on, which was like all of that, but you cannot speak. But to keep like, your emotions inside. Yeah, right? but hush and, about it. Yeah. Uh, defined by this guy named uh, Jeroen Yance, who is a University of Amsterdam professor. Um, and then one other thing that that was that was interesting that you were talking about was this idea of honor. Um, and I think that something that's interesting is when we talk about testosterone. Um, one of the things that they think that testosterone actually might affect is sort of this idea of feeling more pride. Okay. So like people who like have more testosterone, like in their system might feel more pride, not necessarily aggression. Right. But it, it can lead to more collaboration. It sort of, it, it, it depends on the context of the person. It mm-hmm. depends on their socialization, yeah. but it leads to generally speaking, this idea of like wanting to not be considered cheap or dishonorable. Mm-hmm. So exactly yeah. the things that yeah, you're yeah. talking about specifically from this idea of testosterone. Um, and it, it really sort of just depends on the social environment because it can also turn negative very yeah, easily yeah, yeah of course i i think that for me if i were to like define it i think the there are two real questions that i'd want to break down yeah one is like biologically what do we mean in terms of masculinity like what are the biological differences between men and women which is like men typically and and again these are all general statements they do not specifically apply to everyone like right um i would say like men tend to have uh higher muscle mass men tend to have lower fat mass in their body right i right. don't know what that means in any real like like useful sense of the word and it also does not generally apply like simone biles is a tiny person who has more muscle mass in her body than i do <laughs> right i mean i think that the thing that like for me that it sort of does is it says that half of the population on the whole is going to probably be smaller than much of the other half of yeah. the population and could be very physically harmed yeah. at any point by 
a lot of those people. Yeah. Like, could a woman come up and be larger than me and hurt me? Yeah. Sure. But I feel like I'd have a fighting chance with right. a lot of women. Right. Um, whereas could a man come up and hurt me? Almost certainly. The average is and just I would have gonna, a yeah. much less of a fighting chance with much more of that right. population. Right. And on top of that, they are just testosterone coursing through their veins. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and so there and so that's the other part of it is like not just like physical makeup of the body, but like if you have more testosterone, what does that mean in terms of how it affects brain function and how it affects all this other stuff? I'm sure you have, you know, some some stuff to cover there. But I just I did want to mention to your point. Yeah. Um my a friend of mine, uh, who uh, I know uh, from New York, like, and New York is a, a wonderful city, but like, if you're walking alone at night in New York, I imagine, especially as a woman, mm-hmm. it is a concern. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because to your point, like, all it takes is one fairly strong dude and like, no, no one around to like result in a problem. And uh, the, the, the person that I, uh, will not name, but was is a friend of mine who is a woman who is. I never thought of her as like, oh, you're kind of a petite lady. Mm. Uh, I just like you're a human. You're just a person. Just a person who is a person. How tall is this person? Five two. Okay, and, and, <laughs> that's and, a very small person. Yeah, and, I, and I'm just like, I don't know. You seem like a normal sized human who I have a conversation with, right? Mm. Um, but like, she was like, yeah, no, I like. If I'm not eyes on, like, if I'm not, if I'm, if I'm too drunk, if I'm like not. You know, if I'm walking instead of taking a cab places, if I'm not looking around and my surroundings, like it could be over for me, like quickly. Yeah. Like, and, and I just, it's not a thing I've ever had to think about. Um, even though it's, it's possible, like there, some six, five dude could come and put a gun in my back and whatever, but like, uh, it's just not the same level. Right. And so I think there's like, um, there's also just like the, the physicality, the sort of, being a, a person of a certain height, weight, size, whatever, musculature, um, gives you perhaps a faulty sense, but a sense of security. And from that leads other things. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's right. I would say that, you know, it's, again, sort of getting to this back to this idea of testosterone and like what it does to your body. They, they're still just not necessarily clear. They're, the relationship between aggression and testosterone could be reversed. Mm-hmm. And, and there are actually studies that sort of show that this is the case. And I, I don't have all of the science necessarily in front of me, but like a, a lot of the studies, um, there are studies that show that like really it's the aggression that um, is comes before the testosterone in a lot of cases so and, that oh so the aggression then causes the brain or like the body to to release testosterone release, oh, as a as a as a defense mechanism sure basically well, i mean that makes sense like uh it's what happens with adrenaline right right like you get startled and then your body says adrenaline time <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 that makes sense exactly um and also you, the, the amount of testosterone that is in a body or that is released by the body is also just affected by socialization so yeah. there was a study out of like um or on boys in i think bangladesh and basically it was boys that were born in bangladesh yeah. and half of them were raised in bangladesh and half of them were raised in the uk and the boys that were raised in the UK versus the ones that were raised in Bangladesh had higher levels of testosterone just generally mm-hmm. in their bodies based off of the society that they were raised in. Yeah. And so it's there's a there are a lot of different things, but it it could just be the case that like we have 
again, these higher levels of testosterone because you have more aggression or because you have people who are raised to think that they need to be aggressive. It's also interesting because like uh, if you lift weights, it's like you're not lifting weights because you have a bunch of testosterone in your body. Right. It is if you lift weights, your body starts to produce more testosterone. Your body responds to the stimulus with the creation of hormone right. rather than the hormone resulting in more weightlifting. Right. I mean, the thing that you sort of start to get into that's a little bit um, dicey waters is this idea of like gender essentialism, where we say that like men are just predisposed to being this way and women are predisposed to being this way. But it's like, guess what? Uh, Ovaries also produce testosterone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Women have testosterone in their bodies. Men have estrogen in their bodies. Men have estrogen in their bodies. It's It's a, these are just chemicals that you have And also when you start doing things like telling in studies, again, telling people in studies that like, hey, the gender of your gender won't be disclosed. Then you have women acting in ways that are quote unquote more aggressive that you would expect from men and even more aggressively than the men would be in various situations when, when they realize that they're not going to be held or judged by, you know, traditional gender standards. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree. And and to, to that point, so I, I sort of defined like, if you're going to think about masculinity, there's like part of it, this biology, but part of it is like social society, right. like socialization. And like, if you're asking me like, what are the things that I would like say, like, this is a masculine trait, mm-hmm. right? And And like, not one that like society is currently saying is the case, but what I would personally define it as. Yeah. I don't have answers for that. Yeah. Because like the the societal traits like honor, for instance, or stoicism or any of that shit that we talked about earlier, I don't think those are defined by gender or sex. I don't think they're defined by hormones or mm-hmm. biology. I think that like if if a person is supposed to be honorable, women should be honorable. <laughs> men should be honorable. If a person is supposed men to be- Men should be honorable and women should be pieces of shit. <laughs> right. It's like it's like if a person is uh, supposed to be trustworthy or reliable, or if a person is supposed to be strong, like all of these things, like, by yeah. the way, like I saw you give birth to two children. You are stronger than I will ever be. Like unmedicated, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Like I'm not, I'm not that dude. <laughs> yeah. And so I just, I, you know, I feel like there's so much of like, like there's- with the biology stuff, there's a spectrum, but like you can sort of see the the degre- like the the grades in the spectrum. Right. With the society stuff, like there's no, like I, you just want people to be good people. <laughs> I mean, I'm I feel like you came to the same conclusion that I had because I told you I was going to ask you this yeah, question, yeah. and then I was like, "What's my answer to this question?" <laughs> and I feel like the, the, the it's kind of it, right? It's like, okay, are we talking about strength? Like, oh, men are physically strong, but like I'm also to your point, I'm physically I'm strong, man. Yeah. Like I did carry and give birth to two full people, mm-hmm. you know. Um, that is. That's strong. But also then are we saying that like, is it physical strength versus emotional strength, emotional strength, like ideally, like that's kind of everybody and like integrity, like to your point, it's like, what if we're just like this idea of masculinity and femininity, once you start stripping away uh, the toxic parts of it is just like, Hey, what if we should all just be good people? Right. 
Yeah. Well, and it's like, uh, you know, I, I can pick up Cassius and throw him over my shoulder and carry him upstairs with little uh, difficulty. If he screams in my ear, I'm kind of useless for like six minutes until I can get my shit together. Cause like, I just don't respond well to like being yelled at right next to my face. Like it's, it's a, and so like, what does that mean in terms of strength? Right? Like who cares if I can pick something up, if I can't be a dad for a few minutes while I recuperate from being like overly stimulated or whatever you want to call it. Right. Like that's a, like, who cares? Like that, the outcome is the same. Right. And so I, you know, I think it's just, um, to me, all of these things are like, we should all be working on them. We should all be doing better. And there is not a thing that I can define societally that only men need to work on. Yeah, there was one article that I saw like right before we started recording, which is from The Atlantic. And it was this idea, it it, it proposed this idea of the opposite of toxic masculinity, which is heroic masculinity. Not a huge fan of the name, but okay. It's also, you won't be a huge fan of the actual definition either. Um, it, it says that heroic masculinity is the understanding that someone has to climb the endless staircases in the towers on 9-11. So why not a woman? Right. Yeah. Exactly. And the, the explanation that they give is so muddled and watered down. Look, I didn't read the whole thing because I was, I was about to head in here and I, I had only just found it, but it was basically like, Men have to, the the way that men are heroic is different from women who would usually just be heroic to save herself or her children. So, I mean, I don't know that that's true. No. And he's like, but then there's also exceptions to that. Right. And so it's the, the whole thing just seemed super muddled. And it it also seems like the bullshit of like, this is why we don't let women serve in the military for so long. It's like. No, women can be in combat roles. Mm-hmm. They can carry their equipment. They can do all Look, of the I things. I saw G.I. Jane. <laughs> no, you didn't. I've seen G.I. Jane several times. Okay. So I've seen nobody saw that movie. Ridley Scott is still collecting uh, receipts. He's like, not. Demi Moore looks fantastic with a shaved head. Uh, sure. She's got a good head shape. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I, the, I think that. Do when you know you... what Ridley Scott made right after G.I. Jane? Alien 2. Gla- Gladiator. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but the, I, I think that the um, again, when you start trying to come up, even with with like a a positive version of masculinity that is somehow differentiated from femininity yeah. or from being a woman or just being a good person, you start to have to parse things that are that seem arbitrary yeah. that don't necessarily have very good internal logic don't yeah. make a lot of sense. All of these things are going to be linked to in the show notes. Show notes are bananas. This week. <laughs> So here, here's my only thought, yeah. right? If we want to define masculinity from a social perspective, it should not be based on some constant that we have. Like right. here, here are the, the steps towards masculinity, go towards these things. What we should do is say, where are men now? And where should men go to be more healthy, right? Because right now we could say like men are having a harder time with depression, right? right? And so right currently, right now, masculinity is described as being more likely to be depressed, being more likely to commit suicide. That's that is I a mean, that is a societal definition of masculinity at this moment. Right. So, if we want to propose a positive version of masculinity, 
it should be around series of strategies and tactics to move away from those things. Right. And so those things are would be like isolation and stoicism, right? You have yeah. this idea that well like, represented in this movie, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. Right. This idea that men should be detached from their feelings, should repress those feelings, ignore those feelings. Literally to the point, assign them to parts of your body. Right. I am Jack's colon. To the to the point that they are incapable of even acknowledging, let alone dealing with or actively participating like with emotions. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, being so isolated that you have shut yourself off from every single like avenue of intimacy or help that you could possibly have. Again, to the point that you have to go to a men's cancer group in order to get a good hug because there's nobody in your life. Yeah. Spoiler alert. One last time. Edward Norton is Tyler Durden. Right. Like he and Brad Pitt are the same person. Brad Pitt is a projection. Tyler Durden is a character he made up in his mind because he has no one, not a single person in his life with whom he can rely on, talk to, be friends with, partners with, whatever. And so he has to create a fictional person in his own brain who then takes control of his body while yeah. he has insomnia or while he pretends to sleep. Right. And this person does does things with him. And, and by the way, like all of that is uh, cl- like all of the things that you've talked about, the yeah. isolationism, the lack, the inability to talk about emotions, the Edward Norton narrator uh, called referred to as Jack mm-hmm. um, evinces in this film, right? Like there's a part where Marla's like, why don't you just talk to me? And he's like, this conversation is over. And it's Tyler speaking downstairs, Edward Norton repeating those words and his inability to have a real actual conversation with this person he's been sleeping with for what appear to be weeks. For uh, a while. Or for a while uh, yeah. is, is, It's like painful, like watching it on rewatch, just like noticing how she's trying to like relate to him in these moments where he's, you know, the narrator Mm -hmm. is just so hard. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Because she, she doesn't know anything about what's going on. She doesn't, she apparently has no clue that he's bananas, but I think that, I mean, this is something that you see in real life. So um, in her book, in Janet Mock's book, um, Redefining Realness, she talks about very candidly just in her book and in general about how she was a, a sex worker and a big part of her job as a sex worker was not the sex part of it, but was actually providing uh, emotional labor for sure. men who didn't have it anywhere else, who didn't have the ability to ask for it. And so she would do things and sex workers generally do things like have to like have com- craft conversations and stimulate men and make them feel like they're actually being listened to. Because yeah. to your point, when you were in college talking to men, like it just, it, it, and this is something that is also how a lot of other men feel it. They feel like m- talking to other men feels like you're just waiting for the other person to to stop talking so you can talk. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so like this podcast. No, exactly. Just, just, just exactly. <laughs> um, and so they just like, sit, you know, her, a lot of what she would do is just like sort of sit and nod and listen and make them feel like they were being heard. And, and you just, you don't have that. So like one in four men in Australia can't name a single person outside their family who they could rely on. Um, and in the UK, 2.5 million men basically have zero close friends. Yeah. That's not a surprise. Which is 7% of the male population in Europe would say that they have zero close friends. 
So it is this idea that that men are supposed to be an island to themselves, but then are also just, again, so bad at actually creating intimacy and expressing intimacy with other people and specifically with other men that they just find themselves closed off. And the further and further they get along in their lives, the the fewer new relationships they have. And what you find then is that older men who have been married for 30 years and for whatever reason are not, then have, you find that if they find themselves divorced or, or widowed. Yeah suddenly have nobody because their entire world was just their wives for yeah. however long. This is the movie about Schmidt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's a, and there've been movies about that, but I think that like the, to your point, so then you end up having someone like uh, Tyler Durden making perfect sense, right? This idealized version of a man that, that Jack can project everything into yeah. and also takes the place of all the emotional labor that he doesn't yeah. know what to do with and to, to listen to and be the friend that he, he doesn't know how to actually go out and find and, and create in real life. Yeah. And also what does Tyler do? He goes and gets a house full of space monkeys or whatever he refers to them as and just like fills up their paper streets. Fills their life with men. Yeah, with, with dudes. And there's there's actually a line in the film, uh, which is, uh, we're a generation of men raised by women. I'm wondering if a, if another woman is what we really need. And that was supposed to be like sort of in relation to the Marla character, uh-huh. like stay away from her. Uh, but like it was taken on by the gay community to be like poignant, especially because they were both like, in the bathroom at the time when that occurred. Yeah. And so like, it was, it was an interesting point uh, to think like, you know, is there some sort of like level of intimacy to that statement uh, that wasn't necessarily in the script, but was received by the audience, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, I think the other thing about that is like, as our society is sort of like shifted to more flexibility and sort of like where people live. Mm-hmm. It used to be like you lived in your town where you were born and you stayed there forever and knew all of the people who lived there and then you died. Right. <laughs> and there were, and so there was that, like you had your sort of natural born community, but then you also had things like rotary clubs and unions and, you know, uh, c- city like civic activities. And thanks to once again, making an appearance on this podcast, Ronald fucking Reagan, mm. All of those institutions have been destroyed. Sure. All of the third spaces, all of the public goods, all of the things and I, and places that people could go volunteer, um, participate in for free, were privatized, commoditized, and turned into things that were now uh, separate from community. They were capitalist. And so we just became a nation of people who were individual liberty sponsors, slowly murdering ourselves by not being associated with our communities. And that's why they vote Republican. It's my. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think that that's fine. I, I read this other article. <laughs> I think that that's fine. All no. right, moving on. <laughs> well, no, no, no. I mean, I think that that's correct. But I think that I like sort of to that point, I read this article about about community or um, about men by um, this person named uh, Josh P. Hill, who I follow okay. on threads and I used to follow on Twitter when that was a thing. Um, and it's about... Um, how masculinity hurts, you know, hurts men. And uh, one of the things that he talks about is how it has gotten harder to make ends meet. It's gotten harder for uh, to find community and to find people to 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 be with. And so that you just you have people who just they they can't find like a space to yeah. be in. You know. Yeah. 
Like I tried to, I mean, before the pandemic, so it's mm. hard to judge, but like, I was like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll join a basketball team with some folks. Yeah. And then they were like, no, we don't want, even though we couldn't fe- like field a full team. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're good. We needed somebody who was an all-star. It's like, what do you think you're doing? Like we're <laughs> in the middle of Holly Springs, North Carolina, like some, you know, former UNC player is not going to show up to save your team. Like, sure. Just let me play and have fun, but whatever. I, um, well, before we get away from Tyler Durden really quickly, I, I think that there's something interesting ab- about his character. And mm-hmm. I think that it, it, as this like idealized man, because yep. it's interesting that you brought up that they were thinking about Russell Crowe as playing him. And yeah. I think that as an actor, I like Russell Crowe a lot. Yeah. You know, I don't um, think he fits this role, but he but... doesn't fit the role. Right. He's kind of too much of a bear. And I feel like he's too like burly. Whereas with Tyler Durden, he is I mean, with Brad Pitt specifically, um, you have that scene on the bus with them yeah. where they're like driving down the road and they see the like the Versace or Gucci campaign yeah. or whatever. And it's like, Oh, this is what that a man looks like. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's like, Brad, that is what you look like. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> the, yeah. So the thing about, uh, Brad Pitt's character, specifically how he is physically built in this movie. Right. Uh, th- there's a, a personal trainer that I follow, um, who says that, uh, the request that he gets the most still to this day, mm-hmm. 2023 is people want to look like Brad Pitt from fight club. Yeah. That is the most requested, like celebrity body. And he says like, I have to tell you, no one is going to look like Brad Pitt in 1999. You know why? Because Brad Pitt doesn't look like Brad Pitt in 1999. Like everyone has built their own way. Everybody is their own person. You cannot just bring me a picture and have me turn you into someone like I can help you get muscles. I can help you lose weight, but I cannot you help got you. got the body that you've got, man. I cannot help you be Brad Pitt. <laughs> it's not I mean, and here's the thing is like, I am never going to be like Giselle, right? Sure. That's not the shape of my body. That's not the thing that I like am physically capable of being. Yeah. And that's okay. That's fine. I'm, 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 I'm fine with that. You know? And it's like, I think that, I, I think that like, what's interesting though, about like, everybody wants to look like how Brad Pitt looked in this movie. Um, we also had a very sort of, um, stand out, idealized, masculine superstar come into the movie scene recently mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. through Barbie. The Dave Barbie. Batista? No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, uh, Ryan Gosling. With Ryan yeah. Gosling is, it's Ken, Ken yeah. right? Ken is also like, I mean, not nearly as, um, idealized as Barbie, but like he is supposed to be the ideal yeah. man Barbie that even predates, uh, that predates Brad Pitt. Yeah. What's interesting is like, I, um, I, I think that with the Ken in the movie, he's definitely like shirtless a lot more Yes, and like, you know, showing off the abs and the guns and stuff. But like my understanding, and I didn't like really consume a lot of like Barbie content when I was a kid. Yeah. But like Ken was just like the preppy guy in the polo shirt. He wasn't necessarily like the jacked guy. He's jacked. Okay. Ken was jacked. Okay. See, I don't know. Like I, I didn't know if that was like the thing that they were like, he had pecs and, and, uh, and muscle stomach muscles and, um, calves. Okay. And, uh, and a flat space. (laughs) in his groin of course well yeah yeah. i mean they all did but uh no i i just just didn't i assumed it was like 
flat plastic. But if you're it's like, no, they gave him some like definition. Oh, no, okay. it was definitely like muscle body. Got it. Okay. For sure. For sure. Got it. Because um, he was more of a G.I. Joe person. And boy, look at some of like the like the four and a half inch or like six inch G.I. Joe action figures. Oh, I've seen them. Roid rage. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I mean, I, hey, I have a younger brother. So yeah. I have two younger brothers, <laughs> but one that's two years younger than me and had all the toys. And so I've I've definitely seen that. And I think it's it's interesting. I think that um, you could even see in the Barbie movie that that Ken, it, when he becomes this like ultra masculine yeah learned about the patriarchy yeah. ken um he dresses and is very similar to like this like child's idea of tyler durden yeah yeah he's got the big poofy fur per- collar. poofy fur coat and the like ridiculous like you know power clashing yeah. outfits and, just... and the metallica belt buckle that yeah. says ken yeah <laughs> and it feels very tyler Durden yeah. in a way when you see it, but it's just this idea of like old ultra manhood. Yeah, it is. I mean, and, and that is like sort of what um, the, like they were going for with the styling of Tyler Durden mm-hmm. and like the, the sort of freedom, like everything else in the film is like blacks, grays, muted tones, professional attire, whatever. Right. Um, and he's like got, you know, brown leather jackets over a floral pattern shirt, right? He's got like a bathrobe, like actually it was ba- um, Brad Pitt's friend's bathrobe that he borrowed. <laughs> and he's like, this is the worst bathrobe I've ever seen. And so I called her and said, can I use this? But like, he just like doesn't care. Like, right. but he like, it's the kind of like, I don't care what I'm wearing, but I I definitely know I look good in this, yeah. that kind of vibe. And it's like, it's, I mean, the costume designing in this film is incredible. It's so good, yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, I think that's that's a big part of um, what they're trying to get across is like the idealized sort of, you know, super minch, you know? Right. He says, I look how you want to look. I fuck how you want to fuck. I am everything that you are not. Right. Yeah. Well, before we wrap this up, do you want to tell me about like how this was received or is there anything else about this that, that you wanted to go over? Yeah. So a couple other things in terms of other people who they considered casting. So for the role, Edward Norton's character, they originally considered a sexier marquee name. Who do you think they considered? Antonio Banderas. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> Matt Damon. Oh. Yeah. Uh, oh, would, I don't he's think, too handsome. Uh, he wouldn't have been good in this. He's too self-assured, I think. Yeah. Um, and then uh, they also considered Sean Penn, which uh, who had worked <sighs> with David Fincher on the game, but I don't think he would have been. He's too old I think at that, that point. I, I think the thing about this film, one thing about David Fincher that everyone should know if you don't already, is the dude will do like 50 takes. Right. F- for every shot, like he, for every scene, like he just shoots, 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 right? And uh, goes crazy. And I think that my, well, on rewatch, I thought that he got maybe overly comical performances from Edward Norton. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the, the movie is a, a black comedy. Like right. it, it is intended to be funny, but he was playing it very like clownish in the third act. Yes. I mean, compared I, to the first act. T- totally. I mean, his physicality in the third act is just, it's, it's so good it's yeah. so like as, as on the rewatch and yeah. like here's the thing i was talking negatively about edward norton just like generally in the in the director's actor, commentary but his acting is fantastic and he's so right for this role yeah. and the way that he carries it through in the third act like you worry that tyler durden or brad pitt is going to overshadow the entire thing yeah. and he doesn't 
Right. And and the he like Ed Norton at the at the end of this movie is running around like a physically come to life Muppet. Yes. Yeah. He he's like in a, a like a kind of a bathrobe and like his unboxers in a t-shirt just like running around this building and yeah. like bunk, bumping into stuff like getting into his final fight with Tyler. It was like stuff. a trench coat. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And then there's a part where like he's like chasing Marla down and he's like like opens a door car door and like leans out with like papers and stuff to like <laughs> he's like Marla like whatever and it's like that's a little much but it's fine. It's, but I, but I, but it works though. It's it's it, the the tension has been ratcheted up so yeah. much that it's not out of place. But that final and, fight scene with himself in the parking garage, yeah. where like where he's just dragging himself along the sidewalk, yeah. is just so good. Yeah, and I mean it, it is it's a little Buster Keaton. Like it's very uh, obviously there are stunt doubles in there, of course. Like yeah, but but like you know it's it is is really well played. Um, and then. Uh, you know, uh, Brad Pitt even said like the there's an interesting contrast in their two styles. Yeah. Um, he says that Edward Norton prepares for everything. Like he he thinks of like every possible scenario. Mm-hmm. Any like if David Fincher is going to do forty takes, he's got like forty different ways to do this thing. Like he's like thinking yeah, it through. I believe he's, like, it. Yeah, you know, uh, he's he's really cerebral about it. Brad Pitt says like that is the exact opposite of me. Mm-hmm. I show up and just like try and like figure it out on the day. He's like I just want to be what the moment tells me, and he's like. He said in the commentary, he's like, when that works for me, it really works. When it doesn't, <laughs> I have a real hard time. <laughs> and so, you know, he's he's self-aware, but he's... Yeah. Um, I think he is a very, like, sort of naturalistic actor. But, um, yeah, so anyway, the, the other um, choices for Marla, the first choice was Janine Garofalo. Oh. So I want you to think about a movie with Russell Crowe, Matt Damon, and Janine Garofalo. <laughs> Um, anyway, he also pitched Julia Louis-Dreyfus, um, Courtney Love, Winona Ryder, who I could obviously see in this role. Um, and the studio wanted to cast Reese Witherspoon. Showing, once again, they probably had no idea what they were, were doing. Reese Witherspoon? Yeah. They, Ed Fincher was like, no, she's too young. Which, of course she was. Of course she is. But, I mean, Winona Ryder also still too young for that role maybe i don't know how old helena Bonham carter was um yeah maybe she just like has this like look to her, this like perpetually like grown-ass woman look to her she's not over it she has a look this is i'm over it yeah which is like a like maturity she's just yeah. seen shit not that she looks old she just looks like she's just been through some bullshit yeah she's also a heavy smoker so that helps <laughs> yeah yeah uh, no i mean and again she's just she's so good and especially for those close-ups when she's first introduced where she yeah her face and her bone structure just look like an alien yeah this is cancer right she it's just like, looks like something otherworldly yeah yeah yeah, it's it's so funny because like the the thing that drives uh, the narrator yeah. to Tyler is her presence at these uh, these sort of meetings, mm-hmm. and it's because like it's just he sees himself in her, but he can't identify or touch mm-hmm. that emotion. It's like a, 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 like an electric current if he touches it, and so he just backs away from it and creates an entirely whole other person right. <laughs> to run right. away to. Well, and that's the thing that the people that, that that people always say, I think, which is that like when somebody really really bothers you, yeah. it's because you see you parts, see of, yourself parts of yourself in them, yeah. and that is reflected back at you, and that's yeah. why like that's why you're feeling such strong emotions. Projection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, let's get to some of the 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 business let's mm. talk business uh so the initial 
uh, budget for the film okay. was $23 million, approved by Bill Mechanic of Fox and okay. I think Lars Ziskin. Um, and can I guess? Final budget? You can guess if you want. $67 million. Ooh, very close. Okay. Uh, so it uh, by the start of production, it had increased to 50. Okay. Half of that was paid by company New Regency. Um, but during the film, the budget did escalate to $67 million. Wait, that's what I said. Yes, but hold on. <laughs> uh, at that point, New Regency got into like a big argument and said, we have to reduce the cost by at least $5 million. This is too expensive. And so uh, while, while Fincher refused, uh, Mechanic actually sent New Regency um, some of the, the dailies of the film to say, look how good this looks. Yeah. And then they saw Brad Pitt's abs and they were like, fine, keep the money. Uh, but it, it ended up being between 63 and 65. So you were, you were like, I mean, you were very good. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very nicely Thank done. <laughs> um, it, it was, the filming was 138 days. That is insane. Wow. Most films are like 60 or less. Yeah. Um, and it. Went from July to December, filmed mostly at night, and yeah. it shot on over 1,500 rolls of film, which is three <laughs> times the average for a Hollywood film. Like I said, the dude loves to shoot multiple mm-hmm. takes. There's a uh, Go to YouTube, look, in, look at uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, David Fincher, Zodiac. There's a scene where all he has to do is throw a clipboard from the driver's seat to the passenger seat. And just watch how many takes it takes. <laughs> just like it's it's pretty hilarious. Um, overall, three hundred scenes, two hundred locations. Um, Fincher said that uh, he he felt like he was spending all of his time watching trucks being loaded and unloaded so that he could get three lines of dialogue. There was far too much transportation going on. So he his next film was Panic Room, which mm-hmm. was filmed in a panic room. Right. <laughs> so, it's basically a house. Yeah. So he cut that out. Um, and then finally, the music uh, was done by the Dust Brothers, um, but originally they were reaching out to Tom York of Radiohead. Okay. Um, he said Tom York said no because he was recovering from the stress of making OK Computer, which is one of the greatest albums of the 1990s. So sure. makes sense, Tom. Uh, so out of that uh, $67 million budget, uh, what do you think it made? Do, do you want to do opening weekend or do you want to do total domestic? <laughs> Op- um, opening weekend I'm going to say 23 million 11 million wow yep in almost 2000 theaters uh, it did rank first at the box office it beat Double Jeopardy the uh, what's her name uh, Ashley Judd Ashley Judd film yeah and uh, The Story of Us which I don't know anything about um, it graded out as a B minus at Cinescore. Um, and of course the gender mix was 61% male. Yeah. Bill's low. Uh, <laughs> and 58% of the audiences were below the age of 21. Mm-hmm. Um, overall domestic box office was $37 million, uh, international 64. So 101 worldwide. Yeah. Um, huge hit on DVD. DVD. So yeah. it, it certainly made its money back. Um, I mean, the, again, we both owned it. Yeah. Uh, 
it was it was at the prime. It was like the just that right time of mm-hmm. DVDs being the things to do, to own, to get, to give. The DVD menu music is burned into my brain. It's just opening music, but then also like it goes back and forth between that and like boom, 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 boom. Yes, that's right. Yeah, like the elevator, whatever stuff, and it just goes back and forth over and over until I finally wake up to turn off the TV. Oh, sure. Okay. It just Fair. seared into my, my. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Into your subconscious. Yeah. yeah. Me and, uh, that, so that one and, uh, the opening to Amelie for some, yeah. Me and, uh, that one and, uh, Dogma or oh. no, Chasing Amy. Chasing Amy. Chasing yep. Amy. Yep. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> uh, so 79% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics. Uh, so low. It n- should be. 95. 98% from audiences. Uh, okay, so, so there you go. <laughs> so the critics that had a problem with it, I feel like did not understand the project of the film, right. which was, this is a dark comedy and a satire. Right. This is not a, this is not supportive or a sponsorship of the idea that you should be upset with your life and therefore go into join a fight club. <laughs> Right. <laughs> that then becomes Project Mayhem and blows up buildings. Although, by the way, if anyone does want to like erase the debt record, like please feel free to do that. Positive, positive outcome from Project Mayhem, if you ask me. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so like for example, uh, there was a highly critical review in the London Evening Standard by a guy named Alexander Walker. He uh, the headline was a Nazi piece of work. He claimed the story was a paradigm. I'm sorry. <clears throat> <clears throat> He claimed the story was a paradigm of the Hitler state. It's an inadmissible assault on personal decency and on society itself. It echoes propaganda that gave license to the brutal activities of the SA and the SS. It resurrects the Führer principle. It's the literal opposite. (laughs) It is exactly the opposite. It is. You are the Nazi, sir. (laughs) Did you not see the the movie? You are the baddie. Yeah. In this scenario, you were the one trying to maintain social norms for no reason whatsoever. Yes. The- he, so the 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 construction of the film, as Fincher put it, was around the principle. Uh, he claims Buddhist principle. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I, I don't know enough about Buddhism. But he says, in order to evolve as someone becoming enlightenment, you must kill your parents, kill your god, and kill your teacher. Mm-hmm. And so, in the course of the movie. Tyler, uh, um, Jack, whatever, right. uh, his parents are dead. Uh, he kills his God, which is, uh, the, the corporate, you know, uh, advertising promoted world that he built for himself. Yeah. And Tyler helps him do that. His, his, his teacher he blows up his, his, his Ikea apartment. I, yeah, exactly. And then he kills Tyler at the yeah. end of the movie. So he achieve, uh, achieves enlightenment through this path, whether that's actually like how you want to perceive it or not. It, the enlightenment is the destruction of the fascist infrastructure that was built. Yeah. I think that the the problem this guy has, and probably a lot of people who watched this, a lot of people who watched this, is that, again, they just saw the like face value, gun, like a bunch of dudes yeah. fighting and whatever. The big takeaway from this was, first rule about Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. And like that's the punchline right. for a lot of people and the takeaway for a lot of people and and so i like i guess like the final thing i'm curious about is 
like how did it change watching this film like what for you now as a grown person yeah. Yeah. and a father and working in the corporate world and all that stuff like how did it change yeah for it's you watching it now it's interesting so i think the thing that i picked up on when i was younger yeah was like sort of and this was textual in the film was that uh the the generation of tyler durden and and jack and marla etc basically gen x um it, it had its value system largely dictated to it by advertising culture mm-hmm. um and i felt similarly at that time as an angsty teenager right i was yeah. like i am being told what to do what to think being told how to live my life what good is supposed being to be being a sellout was a very big concept at exactly that time. yeah and and i um and I, you know, I've, <laughs> there's a quote that was like, oh, you can achieve spiritual happiness through home furnishing. Mm-hmm. And I, I did, I, I picked up on all of that being like, yeah, this is bullshit. You know, this is a lot of nonsense. But then at the time when I was young, I was like, so I guess it does make sense to go live in an abandoned house in the middle of nowhere and form a soap company that's actually Project Mayhem and blow up the credit. Yeah, we got to do something radical, revolutionary, blah, blah, blah. Right? Rage Against the Machine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I think now... Um, I think it's very clear that the sort of gravitation towards the fascistic ideas of Tyler Durden also resulted in nothing. Like it was, it it was a nihilist pursuit. It was not like fascism is going to save us. It is fascism is what you do because you don't have anything else to do. You don't have good ideas. You just destroy things. You don't Mm -hmm. build things. You don't create things. you You don't, you're not creating family. Like he's out there with a megaphone yelling at these people that they are the all singing, all dancing crap of the world. They're nothing, they're compost, et cetera. That's not building anything for anyone. Mm -hmm. You're taking away the humanity of people. Um, And so you're watching this at at 38. I'm like, I don't think that's not a way forward. It's clearly Tyler is the baddie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and in a way that like his charisma and the way that he's portrayed and, and to, I guess the, the, critics who took it negatively at the time um the performance is so engaging it mm-hmm. can be hard to separate that from the commentary on the character right but i think being my age now and having <laughs> uh lived through uh, a de- uh, 20 more years of life since i first saw this yeah it's pretty damn clear he is <laughs> the david venture yeah. david venture is saying like don't be Tyler Durden. <laughs> like, pretty literally clear. shot him in the head at the Liter- end of the yes. movie. Yeah, he's literally expunged from the film. The man is free when he gets rid of Tyler Durden. That's right. Um, he's destroyed society at that point, but he's free. Yeah. And, and so, he found love. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> and, and I, you know, so I, I think that for me, it's, and, and also just like, I've been to film school. I've learned how to you know, read uh, into things more than just be like, that look cool. So, I, I, you know, I think there's um, there's value to age and experience that um, contextualize this movie a little bit better. Um, I also think that, like, if you listen to what the director says in the commentary when I was 16, if I wasn't just like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I would have picked it up then too, maybe, but I just, you know, you have to be at the right place in your life to to sort of get the message. And I think that that's where I'm more there now than I was then. I think for me watching it now as this grown person who, you know, is 
no longer a teenager and especially preparing for this podcast, um, doing all this research and and within the context of this idea of this crisis of men, it becomes especially clear that there has actually been a crisis of men for much longer than the last five years, right? Maybe we're starting to actually see the decline of men within certain spheres reach a point that people are starting to pay attention. But this idea of masculinity that we have had in our society has been driving men to isolation, repression, Mm -hmm. or suppression of their emotions and to violence and to this inability to... to understand the very basic nature of who they are Mm -hmm. to the point that they feel lost for a long, long time. And we've seen negative implications of the way that men are expected to be and the idealization of how men are expected to be for a very long time. And we're only now talking about it because men are now, you know, nine points less likely to have a degree than, than women are, Yeah, you know, we're seeing it play out. Like the, the patriarchy is no longer suppressing women to the degree that it had been previously. So the manifestation of this, uh, is more visible. Right. Um, Women have been working on themselves and are finally, are finally surpassing men in all of these ways. And men are being left behind because they have not evolved or changed. Which by the way, is why the men in power are trying to restrict rights to women's bodies. They're trying and have restricted rights to abortion. They are trying to reduce uh, no fault divorce. Like it is literally the conservative agenda to protect men's superiority by reinstalling systematic patriarchy. Right. uh, So that they don't have to worry about actually talking about their feelings. Well, they also just like calling women whores. Also that, yes. Uh, but they're related. They're related things. Sure. The, but to your point, um, and this is the last thing I'll say before we get out of here, because this is a long episode. But, yeah. Um, I, I just watched a movie uh, called The Last Picture Show. It's uh, Peter Bogdanovich, Best Picture nominee, 1972. Um, the film came out in 1971 about a sort of dead-end town in Texas from 1951. Um, and these young boys who live in the town. Mm -hmm. And the movie is about what do you do if there's nothing for you, right? Like, if you're told you're a man, you're supposed to go be a world conqueror, you're supposed to go build things, you're supposed to go create things, that everything is outside of you, right? It's not who you are, it's what you can do. Mm -hmm. What do you do if there's nothing you can do, if there's not a, a world... For you to build, if there, if it's everything is a dead end, if everything's washed up and old and dying, right? And so the the movie is about that in many ways, and like Jeff Bridges is a character in there, and he goes to join the the army. Right. Um, another guy is like uh, you know stuck in a dead end job when one of his sort of mentors in the town dies, mm-hmm. and it's it's uh, heartbreaking because a lot of those like like the elements of despair that you talked about mm-hmm. are present in this movie set in 1951 filmed in 1971 like I, it's it's not a recent thing right it if, is, it, if a masculine if masculinity is tied to this idea of achievement and breadwinning yeah. and you don't have that as an option you cannot build things you cannot make money you cannot do the things that that provide yeah. you with that sense of self-worth because you don't have it, it like internally yeah then then you are lost yeah and and yeah it's um so it, it, all that to say yeah there are many movies that deal with this topic uh probably most movies made by men in the last 50 years right uh but um fight club is is one that is 
especially relevant towards, I think, our generation. Um, I'm curious to know what it will be for, uh, you know, like Gen, Gen Z, Gen Alpha, whatever the next versions are. Yeah. Because um, it's not over with. Like, it's going to be a continuing problem. And hopefully we can equip our two sons uh, with tools to, you know, not have to worry so much about it, um, or at least handle it in ways that are effective. But we'll see. I I, I, I will end on this. Mm. I was very proud of our son, and I think you were too. Mm. Um, at the bus stop last week, Cassius uh, was talking to a friend. Mm-hmm. His friend asked him what his favorite color was. Cassius says, my favorite colors are well, blue. Well, he said rainbow. Well, he said rainbow, and the kid was like, <laughs> no, pick a color. Um, and he says, well, blue and pink. And the kid says, pink is a girl color. And he very quickly says, pink is not a girl color. Pink can be an anyone color. That's right. And it's a small thing. I don't know like what that means 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. But to have him declaratively say to that other kid, like, nope, yep. I can wear whatever color I want. I can like whatever color I want. You don't get to define me because of your perceptions. In fact, let me tell you something. You could like pink if you wanted to. Like for him to be so mm-hmm. clear on that. Uh, means we might be doing something right. Yeah, and <laughs> so. then and then I had to hold myself back from yeah. being like, and another thing, kid. Yeah, <laughs> it was a very sweet kid. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, our, no, he he did a great job, and I mean, again, hopefully, like we are just raising good people, and like that's the best you can do, right? Yeah. like just raise a good person. And and honestly, I think that may be like the definition of of masculinity, which is like, can you devote enough of yourself to the people around you, and if you have kids, to your kids. Um, so that they grow up in a world that is better than what you had. Um, and if, as a dude, right. Mm. And if you can do that, congratulations. You did it. You did it. Um, and so we did it. That's the end of this podcast. <laughs> uh, please remember to rate, review, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts, follow us on Instagram, maybe one day on threads. You can follow our newsletter, which is on Substack. It linked in the show notes. I haven't written anything in a while, but I, I do have an idea. Okay. I'm going to write something about what's next for physical media. I've been amassing a 4K Blu-ray collection. Yeah. But I'm curious, like, are we going to do anything after that? Or are we doing more physical media after 4K Blu-rays? I don't know. So I'm going to look into it. I'm going to write something about Ooh. it. Ooh. Yeah. All right. All right. So you, you all done? Anything else you want to say? No. Uh, have a good weekend. Right. Don't yeah. start any fights. Oh, la- uh, yeah. There is also, if you want to actually learn more about the movie, because we didn't get into it that much, uh, <laughs> tomorrow, go look for the Blank Check podcast. Blank Check with Griffin and David is doing all of David Fincher's movies in order. And this this podcast you're listening to now came out on Saturday. Their podcast on Fight Club comes out Sunday. They do a great job. So uh, go listen to theirs. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.